This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast. And uh, today I have a conversation with Dana Ballard, who is um, also a speaker in our summer school here in Barcelona. And um, Dana, in your, in your presentation, which focused very much on vision, you started out by making a pretty strong point about why, let's say, the standard notion of feed-forward saliency maps actually don't really do the job in vision. So what's, what's the problem with sort of the standard notion of a saliency map and why is it not sufficient? Wow, Paul. Well, first, let me thank you for inviting me here. It's a lot of fun, and the establishment is very new and beautiful. But um, as for your question, um, the the problem, people who aren't vision scientists mm-hmm. take vision for granted. And every, every person has the sensation of vision of being a person on the street and being in the middle of a, a, a very beautiful three-dimensional movie. So the, the act of seeing is completely taken for granted, whereas if you, as a scientist, if you start to examine the brain and how vision works, how the images are gathered and sent to the brain, then you get a completely different picture, and it's a, almost untenable picture mm-hmm. from the standpoint of everyday experience. And so the, the hardest thing to come to grips with, as I mentioned in my talk, is the binocular visual visual system has only good resolution in a tiny, tiny place in the middle of the gaze vector. So it's one degree. So if a person holds his arm at arm's length, the width of the thumb is the place where you have very, very good resolution you can read. Outside of that, the resolution um, becomes so poor that you can't even read out that. And then, and and um, as I mentioned in my lecture, that um, people found this out by changing the letters outside of the gaze point. So you, so the so people started to think, hmm. Um, if this is true, where should the eyes go? If there's a tiny little sort of pistol of good resolution that you're pointing around um, the visual world, and you, you, I should also mention that the visual system is discrete, so that we're not aware of it, but every um, third of a second we change our eyes to a different point. And so if, if this is true, where should we look? And so a, a, a substantial um, group of scientists thought that uh, where you would look is saliency. So the pieces of the image that are most visually complicated, like if you're, if you're wearing a wristwatch or if you're holding some bracelet or just the eyes of another person, those are places where the image is busy. And the thought is that, well, those would be candidate places. And so the original thinking was, well, those are candidate places and somehow the brain knows how to pick one of those from moment to moment. But... Um, uh, I would say another camp, a camp of which I'm um, a member, is the idea that, well, that, that might not be true because um, it might be more agenda-driven. So this is very, very hard to get used to, but it could be that um, vision is really a succession of information-gathering experiences and where you point your eyes to get some quanta of information and then um, somehow the brain knows how to integrate these quanta into some sensation, which is called seeing. 
And mm-hmm. no one knows exactly how this works. If anybody figures it out, it's a Nobel Prize for sure. <laughs> but um, at the at the moment, we are we're still sort of wa- trying to guess some of the some of the constraints that would lead us on the right path towards mm-hmm. understanding this. And and that's that's the that's the saliency thing. So the right. saliency is really um, an initial try. Mm-hmm. And now the agenda, the agenda faction thinks they are the second try. Okay, but now, would you believe in some sort of compromise between these two schools of thought? Is that the solution, or you really think it's going to be either one or the other? Okay, I know I'm in Europe, and it's appropriate to compromise. Mm-hmm. So, um, so well, one issue where where you might be able to compromise is the following: is that if vision is entirely agenda driven then the issue comes up of well when would you ever change your agenda so if you're if you're driving along and you're paying attention to the car in front of you and and um, what would make you pay attention to uh, say a, a small child runs in front of the car what would what would make you make you uh, pay attention so a compromise would be to take busy places in the image but then you get to pick and choose them according to your agenda. So in front of the car, you, you would set it up so that you're sensitive to motion. Any irregular movement, so in the car, when you're moving along, there's lots of motion. But it's very expected motion. But if there's some unexpected motion, and you can quantify this on a computer, if there's some unexpected, let's call it salient motion, then you would allow yourself to be interrupted and deal with that. So mm-hmm. so the compromise would be that you have um, agenda-driven saliency, where mm-hmm. you can modify what's interesting in the image, depending right. on your... But, but then, <clears throat> so one experiment that you, that you described was, uh, let's say, your, your litter-gathering experiment, right? Where you actually try to also dissect now what is more agenda-driven form of, of attention might look like what what its components could be and how they could possibly work work together so what's the what was the key idea behind that experiment well the key the key idea is that um, every everyone would like to every scientist or such a huge group of scientists would like to solve the last big mystery how does the brain work and so how does thinking work and the the there's a very sharp fork in the road as to whether you can think the system is is can be composed of primitives. So is there some way to break intelligence down so that you have these little quantum pieces and then so you can get very complicated behaviors by by picking and choosing pieces like a puzzle. And people one one thought is that well the, from what we are learning about the brain, these the amount of pieces in your puzzle can, has to be small, say less than ten. And so this this is another idea. It's very hard to get used to, but people are starting to think along this lines so that you you have a lot of puzzle pieces, but um, for the puzzle you want to make, you have to pick a small amount of a, in the time. And so, um, of course, in the laboratory, um, we tend to become more and more modest in the kinds of t- um, problems we tackle because of technical difficulties, and so in the in the problem you mentioned, we have um, 
we have we actually have human subjects in a virtual environment. They're walking down a sidewalk in the city, and there is litter there to pick up. They have that job, and then the, there's obstacles to go around, and then they have to stay on the sidewalks. So that's three things to do at a time. And so we, we ask the question, well, um, can we keep track of the agenda during this um, f- during these three six, uh, simultaneous tasks, and we can we watch it and and tell which one the brain's working on. And so we use the eye movements. We analyze the eye movement traces and 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 report on on what task is immediately being being wor- worked on there. And the hope is, of course, that if we can understand how to do three tasks, mm-hmm. then lots and lots of tasks are just around the corner, as long as we can pick them in successions of three or five or ten. Right. But in this case, the task you try to decompose is always going back to an eye movement, right? It's either an eye movement in the service of picking up the litter or an eye movement in the service of avoiding an obstacle. Or is that a too limited interpretation? No, not at all. I mean, it's that um, you have your five senses, and I I always say vision is the most important. Um, other people say, no, no, taste is the most important because if you lose that, you'll eat something, you'll eat poison and die. But in, 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 if you want to get information from a, a considerable distance and you want to get very elaborate, rich sources of what's out there in the world, you can't beat vision. And so the most the n- number of people studying vision probably um, dwarf the number of people studying the rest of the senses. And so vision is so important that we feel if we understand um, that one, the other senses um, will will fall. <laughs> will mm-hmm. fall. The other people are look, working on the other way. They think let's go simple first mm-hmm. and try to understand one of the simpler sem- senses, and, and then we can build up. But vision is, is is certainly attracted the attention of many many researchers. Right. But now in your task, in this decomposition of a task, so we have the litter gathering, avoiding the obstacles, stay on the path. Right. Mm-hmm. And you map that into let's say three behavioral modules that would drive the eye movements or the gaze. Mm, mm, mm. But now in some sense, that's like a one-to-one mapping of, let's say, properties of the virtual world because either it's litter, that's one module, Mm -hmm. or an obstacle, Mm -hmm. other module, Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. it's the path, other uh, it's the Mm -hmm. other module. So Mm -hmm. if you have a mapping, let's say, one-to-one between behavioral modules and the relevant objects in the world, would you get an explosion of, of behavioral modules? Well, um, you would, of course, if you did it incorrectly. And Mm so it's always embarrassing in in science how you sweep certain problems under the rug. And so, as you point out, for our three tasks, there's a unique feature identifying the, the task. But in general, um, you, you want to categorize the world into objects or, or um, as a American psychologist said, affordances and into things, not based on their sort of native um, features per se, but rather in are they going to be useful? And so um, if you're in a dark alley and, and there's people coming towards you and you need some kind of weapon to protect yourself, it might be a piece of wood, it might be a pipe, it might be a stone. There's, there's, but some, what do those things have in common? They have some feature that would help you from this task. Some, and so um, there are people in vision looking at ways to convert um, these elementary geometric and, and mass properties description of mm-hmm. objects into um, some sort of um, f- tool-like feature. So mm-hmm. that problem is being worked on, but right. not by but, me. Well, actually, also in your experiment, you showed that the, the eye movement uh, trajectory 
varied with whether the object had to be avoided or not. Yes. Right? Because then I think you also showed that in case it was, let's say, to be avoided object in the task, the eye movements were more at the edges, so you wouldn't bump mm -hmm. into it. While if it was more a viewing-related um, task, the eye movements were more going towards the center of the object. So in that sense, I think this also that shows how the affordance of that object varies depending on the task that in turn translates in the in the eye movement behavior. Is that, is that correct? That's true, and that sort of gets us into the sort of research that would unify what you and I are sometimes doing is this idea of embodied cognition. Mm -hmm. So it's actually not only the properties of the object, but it's the interaction of the user of the object and the object itself. It's sort of how the human is coupled to the to the world, and which would lead us to perhaps the most shocking topic at all of all is in the eye movement. Um, the original thinking was that when the eyes looked out in the world and captured an image, that somehow that image was copied in the brain in some way, and and so um, people quickly debunked that because then there would have to be some somebody in the brain looking at that image, and then that that never stops. So the so when when uh, the the other end of the spectrum that is getting a lot of weight is that when you're, you look at a certain place, you actually are not painting an image at all, but you're after this property that we talked about. They were after some feature of the, of the spot you're looking at. There's some information you want, and like you mentioned, going around an object, you look at the edge because you want to rotate around the object. Where if you're picking up, you look for the center because you want to go right towards it. And so um, this is a, this is an idea that really takes um, a lot of time to get used to the idea that every third of a second, that when you move your eyes to a point, you're doing that for some visual test. If it's reading, you're trying to decode the word you're looking at in the text. But in the real world, if you're picking up objects or you have some tests or you're cooking, driving a car, the tests get um, very interesting and different in each case. And one of the one of the tests is to see if somehow we can categorize all the different tests that you right. that you do. But now, the so. In, this would illustrate this notion of your agenda, if you want, dictating how you deal with objects in the world visually, how you actually extract information from these objects, right? But now, this this could be interpreted in two ways. Either you could say, like, well, in the object affordance relationship, like the object, what you can do with it, uh, gets defined in a rather different way. So it's almost a different category. It's not, in some sense, internally mm -hmm. an object. Mm -hmm. Or you could argue, well, actually, you really detect the same object. It's still the same sort of obstacle, but the same shape. And in both cases, you, you extract that. But it's more like a biasing of how you process that object. So, so which of these two interpretations would you favor? Hmm. I mean, I, I think that's a, a tricky one. I mean, it, it really gets in the, the, I think we have to go back to agenda driven, mm -hmm. you know. So in, in when you pick a particular agenda item to work on, when you pick the task, that task has um, the properties of the object you're interacting with um, written in, in some internal form. And so you just have to um, query the world to see if that the, the object you're looking at in fact satisfies those properties. And so, I'd, so I'm, I'm trying to think. Um, I know this is going to come down one side or the other of your question, mm -hmm. but I'm going to let you pick one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so my, my bet would be that, uh, that uh, you build up a scene um, which will contain this object, but I think the way you bias it with respect to your action will vary. So it's not, on the other hand, you could argue that's okay, but 
uh, if you would look at example of, of let's say inattentional blindness then the objects are actually out there but you're not seeing them because not related to your to your agenda so um, so in that sense, it looks like it's 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 a difficult problem to solve at this stage. But but you were the one giving the talk, and not me. So I mean, you're the one who has to solve it now for me. I see. Well, but I think you you brought in you opened the door to attentional blindness, mm -hmm. and and perhaps um, we should just revisit the idea that that um, in the rather astonishing variety of experiments are, um, done by Dan Simons and others. Um, that that people don't know radic huge changes in their visual world, and one of the famous um, examples was is um, some variant of a person um, approaching a counter, and like like you would if you're checking into a hotel and you're dealing with the clerk. But of course, it's an experiment, so the clerk ducks under the table to get something supposedly, and there's a person hiding behind there, and he another person pops up. And the person, if the if the person who replaces the original person is only vaguely similar, the 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 person who came to the table would never never notice the difference. And so the th thinking, of course, from our what we call our Cartesian view of the world, where everything's a picture and there are objects in it that we can sort of label like an inverse paint by numbers um, world, that that um, just de defies explanation because we should notice the changes, but in an agenda-driven view of the world, well, we don't because um, we, we can be nice to the clerk and, and polite, but it, we don't um, expect the relationship to go on forever, and so we don't quote a lot of details about the, what, what the person looks like or, or, or et cetera, et cetera. So that, the change blindness example is actually a, a quintessential example of agenda-driven right. mm. vision at work. Mm. Exactly. You just mm. need the features to do the job. Mm -hmm. And so, exactly. so yeah. I would say that um, the fact that in our manufactured mm. world, we give lots of things helpful hints, mm -hmm. like putting them in cylinders and writing Coke on them, mm -hmm. but, but for the most part, um, we come prepared to just exploit the functional features of something mm -hmm. in, in, in getting to the tool use stage. Right. So then... From that perspective, so in this agenda-driven view of, of perception, uh, then your gaze behavior becomes one of, if you want, information-seeking or uncertainty reduction was the, the notion you used for that. So how does that relate exactly to the agenda-driven view? Well, um, so let's see. We'd have to try to summarize this um succinctly mm -hmm. and so uh, a one one central issue in the the brain and how the brain uses vision is of course that you are you have these agenda items which we think of as programs internal programs that neurons are in charge of and the question is how does that all happen and why we we don't we don't know even the beginnings of it we have some clues and one is that um, you, what the brain has to do is be its own programmer. So if you're working for a company, you can be a programmer and write programs for it. But if you, the person, have internal programs, how do you code them? And so the prevailing view is that somehow the, the neural system has a way of trying, of, of suggesting programs, and then you would score them as to how effective they are. 
and this internal scoring is believed to be this um, chemical chemical molecule dopamine. So dopamine is like an internal uh, internal currency. I would, I call it in 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 the classroom. I call it neur- the neuro in honor of the euro. Mm-hmm. But it's just an internal um, um, pay scale for rating different programs. And the idea of you as a surviving person who wants to spread your genes around, you would you try to um, earn the most. You're designed to earn the most neuros. And the neurons are the neurons in your head. They can't see out. They just have to. Um, they just have to deal with 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 um, what their internal structures are, and so that um, so they they do things like these visual tests and try the visual test. Everyone is comes um, with its own uh, rate of return, and you just the internal uh, gender driven programs that you're running. They are all worth something. Something, and you. Your um, you some part of you is trying to pick the best ones. Mm-hmm. Now, what what makes me earn neuros exactly? Oh, you come out of the box. You come out of the box as a neuro mm-hmm. um, accumulator. Uh, neuro accumulator. <laughs> you have to. You come. It's it's rather interesting. The um, the. No, but are you saying I'm out there really trying to collect drops of juice and sugar and sex drugs and rock and roll? Or am I also earning neuros for doing other things? It's the answer is both. Mm-hmm. So your brain evolved in stages, and the part we associate with being some kind of a computer is the forebrain, and so that's the last to go. And it's very complicated; it has lots of parts that we could talk about, but maybe we shouldn't. But the, it sits on top of an earlier system that it con- contains the chemical rewards and and dope the the neurons the, that are that are. Uh, um, communicating in this computer part that gives reward, they're dopaminergic neurons. And mm-hmm. so they, you have a vast system of wires that goes through all your modern for, forebrain, but the, the, the part down in the brainstem that's handing this out is right next to the part that has it, your basic rewards, your drives, mm-hmm. the four Fs they're called for mm-hmm. fight, flee, feed, and, 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 and reproduction. Right. And, and, and so, the, so basically the way your brain works, the forebrain works, even though you do these elaborate um, programs like algebra and mm-hmm. physics and, and trading on the stock market, they all have to communicate somehow with the basic drives. So the, 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 the basic drive, somehow your forebrain comes up with these elaborate, has to do the elaborate um, translation of why you're doing what you're doing is worth uh, this reward. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, but now if we, if we map that back to gaze behavior, mm. right? So uh, you mentioned that gaze is, is driven by, let's say, uh, the need to reduce uncertainty about the world. So now what, what makes me earn neuros? When I identify the spots that that give me the maximum uncertainty reduction, mm, mm, or mm. do I earn neuros for jumping to the spot where I get the juice reward? Well, it, I mean, it it depends how that that can fall out in different ways in different contexts. But mm-hmm. the the fact that you've come this far means you've. From our the perspective that we share, I think, mm-hmm. is that we've totally bought into this program. So there's some evidence, like um, Kenji Doya and, and and others, are saying suggesting another um, uh, one of these molecules, serotonin, is responsible for risk. 
So when you, so when you, if we think back to choosing one of these agenda-driven behaviors, and we don't really want to know what it is, we just want to know how to characterize it in the most um, basic sense. It's like a gamble. So how much, how much reward and how much risk is it? And, and so we, so the brain d- doesn't want to do these apples and oranges companions. Mm-hmm. Comparisons. It wants to reduce everything to a common denominator. So, how many neurons? What's the risk? So, mm-hmm. your internal programs, the way they run, it's like making a bet. Mm-hmm. And so, from that perspective, um, the eye movement system can help by reducing risk. Mm-hmm. So, if you can reduce the risk, then your bet will become more of a sure bet, and you're going to get more more mm-hmm. reward. And and if the internal thing is matched to the external world, then it'll be an accurate rendition of the, right. of the value to you. And so, so yesterday you showed in a, in, in a more theoretical experiment where you also then try to, let's say, extract the neuros that a viewer would be accumulating yes. with a certain scan path to the world, giving a task. Right. So, so does that really make sense? So what, the regularities, so if you map an, an eye movement pattern back to an inference on what the value would be or could be, how consistent is that? What you what you get out of that? Well, I mean, in the lab, what can we do? So, if we think we got it, mm-hmm. if we think we got it, so in practically, a couple of things first. Practically, um, that that people have shown that in 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 the brain, the neurons are sensitive to dopamine rewards. So there's miles and miles of uh, evidence where people have reward um, recorded the from the cells passing out reward and show they behave in a very consistent um, fashion. So the monkeys doing tasks are doing tests under different circumstances and under these circumstances they should get more or less reward and the actual neural recordings are very consistent showing that they get more um, more the cells are firing more furiously passing out more reward than when they should so that says okay well maybe this is on the right track but in 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 terms of um, what we're working on you know that's one of the issues is that you know if you eat an apple your body your um, body um, structure can convert that into calories for you, so you can your brain can be told um, how, what's the calories to neuros conversion. Mm-hmm. But if you're writing a scientific paper and you get it accepted in a journal, um, what is how many neurons is neurons is that worth? And that's a delicate problem: mm-hmm. is that you handing out the reward and you earning reward are the same person. Right. And so the the question you raise of how to keep that in calibration is a, is a very delicate and important one. And mm-hmm. in in the lab, um, we, we we're not working with monkeys; we're working with human subjects in virtual environments. So we can change the environments in a way that would suggest the reward should behave in in a certain way, or the uncertainty should interact with reward in a certain way. And then if 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 those um, results back come back consistently, then we think, oh, ho, we're on the right track. Mm-hmm. Right. But now, if you look at this one interpretation of the dopamine system, um, going back to Wolfram Schultz and others, would be that dopamine responds to unpredicted reward, right? But in some sense, if you take this sort of uncertainty reduction interpretation mm-hmm. of gaze mm-hmm. behavior, mm-hmm. then I'm, I'm gazing to positions where I'm expecting something, mm-hmm. right? So that means... It's not an unexpected reward. If you hit the right spot and it helps you to reduce uncertainty, it's an expected reward. So then dopamine should not fire. So yeah, yeah, what, yeah. What, what did I miss? 
you you didn't miss anything, but you you might have skidded over what what we would think of as a fairly minor technical point. Is that um, what gets code? What it, how exactly is the information coded in the brain? And the the um, since basically the brain's programs are run over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, that, for example, eye movements these fast eye movements we talked about are made at the rate of 150,000 eye mo- gaze points per day. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for all the tasks like cooking, making coffee and stuff, you've done it many, many times. And so before you run the program, you have a very good estimate of what you should get. And so that's, it's cheaper for the brain. This is Wolfram Schultz's um, work predominantly. That it's cheaper for the brain to record the distance the difference between mm-hmm. what you thought you'd get and what you'd get, and there's a lot of evidence for this. That this is this is the way the brain chooses because it's just cheaper to keep just keep track of what, when something isn't what you expected. Either mm-hmm. way, you got more than expected or less than expected. Mm-hmm. So that and technically, um, some of the algorithms that we use work on that principle. They work on right. the difference difference coding principle. Mm-hmm. But it, it it it's it's really I would say. A bit secondary because it's sort of a, 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 a economical coding principle rather than the, than the main lesson, which is the mm-hmm. brain has to keep a, right. the secondary reward mm-hmm. model of, mm-hmm. of, of of things. But now the other the other issue, if you if you take this sort of sort of the law of effect approach of Thorndike, mm-hmm. which is, goes back to, which basically means as uh, you optimize your rewards. Uh, so you reinforce the things that that gives you reward, and you try to stamp out, as he called it, the things that do not give you reward. Mm-hmm. Then, in your case, you might end up following gaze patterns that are tuned to a certain task in a certain environment because they optimize reward, and that might be maladapted to, let's say, changes in that task or to other tasks. Mm-hmm. And then you have to first stamp out that whole gaze pattern you have acquired and reacquire another one from scratch so it, it might lead to inefficiencies if you talk about switching between different tasks so how would how would your model deal with that so let's say we, we go from picking up litter to catching birds or something mm-hmm. like this well this we have to tie this back to some things we, we talked about at the at the beginning really is um I actually, this is the gaze work, I should mention, is the work of Nathan Sprague, who's a mm-hmm. former PhD student, and, and um, I actually told him that when he started to um, think about this problem, I gave him the Thor- Thorndike line mm-hmm. that I thought just looking um, at the right place should you get you the most reward. And Nathan came back and explained to me, no, it's it's the if you want to account for the data, then um, reward the reducing the reward weighted uncertainty is the right way to go. Mm-hmm. So it's not reward per se, but it's the reduction in the looking um, increases the odds of of winning your bet mm-hmm. in our gender driven world. And so he showed basically that the original idea, Thorndike idea was unstable when you apply it to gaze. Mm-hmm. But if you if you did the this product of reward and uncertainty, it was stable and actually could outperform the the the, the alternatives. Right. Okay. So that would that would lead to a somewhat different interpretation of the of let's say the cues that drive reward. It would not mm-hmm. be just let's say a flat out drop of juice or something like this or some image that looks very pleasing it is really the first detection of an uncertainty reduction that in itself will be driving a a, a reward signal right that would be the interpretation of this right right okay 
There's right. a very famous, I, perhaps we can add, there's a very famous um, tape from John Senders, who was really a pioneer in thinking about the uh, information properties of, of gays. And he asked the question, if, what, if you, um, what if you can't use your eyes? And he built a very special device that would, um, while driving a car, it would, reduce, it would eliminate his gaze for different amounts of times. So this huge clamshell um, mm-hmm. came down and blocked his vision, and he, it was driven by a motor, so he could have it um, skewered for one second, two seconds, three seconds, four seconds, and about four or five seconds while driving a car on the highway, you get into terrible trouble, and, and you really have a very visceral sense that it's the uncertainty on where you are mm-hmm. that's the driving force. And I think this was Nathan's mm-hmm. kind of insight, too, mm-hmm. is that it's the when you have reward and uncertainty, in the case of gaze, it's the uncertainty that's dominating mm-hmm. and that needs to be paid attention to. Right. So but then, if we would take this literal interpretation of the dopamine signal as unexpected reward, um, would you say, look, this idea of of uncertainty reduction as a rewarding uh, a reward driving signal is it important for you that this gets mapped to dopamine or you also be happy if it could be if it would be some other neuromodulatory system that is conveying um, that signal to the rest of the brain or well, it's really specific for you to the dopamine system no i mean as a as um, a modeler of course it's a scalar something and okay. so if it was something else that would be fine but uh, right. of course like um, you know the Nobel Prize has already been given out for the discovery of dopamine's role in mm-hmm. in this in, in this context so um, mm-hmm. you'd be swimming it's, we, we really don't know what the alternatives what a good alternative is right. in, in, okay. in this place and no, no, but that's good so you, you really you would fight and die more for the general idea of the scalar value absolutely right? and, Abs- but not absolutely it not. doesn't have to be that but, okay. but but it, there's there's a lot of evidence for it, and and all the addictions like nicotine and cocaine are linked to breaking into the dopamine storehouse. That's right. But how would let's say these addictions be informative on let's say uncertainty reduction? Right. I mean, sure, that it relates to reward. That's clear. But in your specific angle on it is the uncertainty reduction. Well, okay. But we have to keep in mind where we started here is that we started thinking about vision, mm-hmm. and we've started by, by this very esoteric and high-performance gaze system that can really move the eyes to different p- parts in the visual world at speeds up to 700 degrees per second. Mm-hmm. So the eye movement system is really remarkable and very different. And so that at that end of the spectrum, with that part of the human machine, mm-hmm. then uncertainty comes into play right but when you know when you're um you know breaking into a house and taking the high definition television Mm -hmm. so that you can sell it and have more cocaine and more dopamine um, then you're dealing with the (laughs) there are uncertainties but you're really (laughs) after the reward the reward is driving you and and overwhelmingly so yeah okay that's clear so then you also showed experiments where you were generalizing this way of thinking to driving cars in virtual reality Right. So, yes. so, so, why? How were these experiments with following another car and and trying to see? Uh, so, people have a task to follow another car at a certain speed. Mm-hmm. This car moves mm-hmm. along mm-hmm. some some highway. And what you're looking at is then the, the the switching between the car you're following and the speedometer because you have to stick to a to a certain speed. Yes. Right? So, how has this been informative on this notion of uncertainty reduction? Well. Um, of course, 
like we talked about John Sanders' experiment driving the car, and and if you don't pay, if it, our, of course, uh, being a, a researcher, um, the the style is to defend certain hypotheses that you're trying to run down, and so the thought was, well, driving is perhaps a little like um, walking down a sidewalk in the following sense: is you have a limited agenda of things that you can do in this multitasking sense. And um, what the, what could they be? And in the lab, we picked in the demonstration you're talking about. We picked something um, simple or relatively simple, following a car at a, at a certain speed, so dual task. And then in in our subjects, in a virtual car, so we have a car simulator. They the gaze pattern goes back and forth from the car they're following to the speedometer. But um, of course, we know in real life that uh, multitasking in driving is critical. And in the U.S., there's a terrible problem with um, teenagers and texting, and um, and talking on the phone during driving. And so that that's a a, a very demanding task to be doing in and competes and uh, often sometimes fatally with a normal driving task even in simple situations like driving on a free on a freeway and, and mm-hmm. things like that people will wander into the wrong lane and 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 finally the television is trying to um, alert people particularly young people that they they, they shouldn't do this right. because in the US it's mm-hmm. very hard to pass a law against anything mm-hmm. so we're a free country but this is a <laughs> this is a this is a, a, definitely a place where we shouldn't be a free country mm-hmm. we shouldn't be tech- and talking on the phone while driving the car, right? And and but 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 what it points out, though, I think, um, rather um, cruelly, is that this idea of uncertainty. Because if you start, here's where you start multitasking on a phone um, or typing something some on, on an Android keyboard. Sorry for Android, hmm. um, any old phone. Yeah. And and and. Um, then that just that just steals your uh, your cycles, if you wish, com- mm-hmm. computer cycles, and it steals your gaze. So your mm-hmm. gaze is now staring at this keyboard when it should be looking out at driving, and so it's right. multitasking. So you're sneaking some gazes on the road, uh, hopefully, but in in the accidents, you're you're not doing it enough, and mm-hmm. so you're just you're just spending too much time on the keyboard, right. not enough time. Mm-hmm. But but if you think it about abstractly, it's just one of these task things. So mm-hmm. you're texting or you're looking at the road. Your gaze is going back and forth, and you're trying to make a decision about uncertainty. But since you're a teenager, mm-hmm. you don't quite have the numbers right, and so you're not giving enough weight to looking mm-hmm. and looking at what you're doing. Right, but how rapidly in in this driving task? Uh, what can you say about, let's say, the the speed or the the rate at at which this uncertainty increases over time? Is that, let's say, linear with time, or is there some other relationship? Oh, we want to know, but that's a laboratory. That's a research question. Of I mean, we're, we're we're trying to think. It's a, exactly what kinds of manipulations we would do to pin that down. Mm-hmm. If we we would be very 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 satisfied mm-hmm. if we could come up with some sort but, of um, wait, model for it, that. No? But you have it, no? Because it's the probability to see an eye movement from the car you're tracking to uh, the speedometer, or vice versa. It's like when a person looks at the speedometer. Mm-hmm. So now I'm not tracking the car. Now uncertainty about the position of the car is building up. Mm-hmm. So and that should, I guess, correlate with now the probability to see a, a saccade back to the car. So yeah, if you yeah, no, just no, plot- no, you got it, you got it, Paul. And I, no, I think that's a good suggestion. And certainly we want to do something okay. like that. The only thing that makes it tricky <laughs> is we don't know from first principles how much reward we should give to the individual tasks. 
And so there's a mm. confound. We can't quite, if we have a product of reward and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And so we don't, the tricky part is to thinking of experiments that would decompose mm -hmm. those factors so we could pin down mm -hmm. how much of the factor is the reward and mm -hmm. how much is the uncertainty. But okay, that, so that's the only make thing that okay. makes it ticklish, so you, but that's what we want okay. to do. But then you just can make it a game where the, the, the instruction yeah. varies from just worry about speed to just worry about the car and all combinations in between with some gradation and then you want to plot the probability to see these eye movements from one to the other and that, that would tell you then the uncertainty build up, I guess. At this point I'm thinking, we should bring you to Texas, <laughs> where I'm from, because clearly, <laughs> clearly, you can solve this problem for us. <laughs> okay, good. You got a deal. <laughs> but <laughs> um, so, so, but this is great, right? Because now we, we so, so you, we're looking at perception as an agenda-driven, uh, active process. Um, with respect to and the measures in eye movement but then i could say yeah that's all really nice dana but i think you're a bit too vision centric because i'm not flapping my ears around in a similar way it right my my ears are have sort of almost omnidirectional access to the auditory world to the sound pressure waves so i don't have that problem so i i don't i don't have to have the same kind of selectivity in now sucking in the information because i don't have something like a an auditory phobia Right, so, so. Um, but I have to say, um, so your listeners may not know that you're a relatively young person, and so if you were an old person, you would answer that question completely differently. Okay. Because so um, I lost my ticket to Texas now. No, no, no. We have uh, old people. Okay. Old people can come there too. Uh, okay, now, good. Uh, I mean, young people. Um, but, but the, but. What I think you what I think you remembered is in the auditory system, one one nice illustration is the cocktail party mm -hmm. effect. Whereas if you're in a crowded cocktail party and someone calls out your name, you immediately recognize it. Mm -hmm. And so what you can do with the auditory system, you really have something like the visual problem. Mm -hmm. Is that in a in a in a situation with lots and lots of background noise, that you can um, tune in to one particular speaker and mm -hmm. one particular conversation and so it's it's not exactly the same as vision but it has shares a lot of mm -hmm. the same abstract features in that in the auditory picture in the visual world you want to pick out a place mm -hmm. where the um, object of interest is in the auditory world mm -hmm. you want to pick a part of the uh, auditory spectrum where mm -hmm. the actual voice signal is right. being generated and so mm -hmm. a lot of, so it's at an abstract level some of the problems are are, are quite similar mm -hmm. and right. and also you have some ability since you have two ears and the auditory signal is is different depending on the loca location space it's coming from you have some ability to mm -hmm. filter the signal from where it's coming from in space right. and mm -hmm. so there, there 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 are there are similarities and mm -hmm. so in an agenda where there's multiple speakers um, that would be like multitasking right you, okay. okay so that means so you would say look maybe the implementation might be somewhat different because I'm not flapping my ears around but in in, in both cases you have an information bottleneck it's yes. like the, the central processing of information about yes. the world is restricted Yes. Right. So there's a limited bandwidth. Absolutely. And you have to pre-filter in some sense what you allow mm -hmm. to enter, and that is done on the basis of this agenda that you're mm -hmm. driving. Right. And you would say this would generalize to to also olfaction or or somatosensory um, information. Yes. I mean, I think I think 
I'm not an expert in any of the other senses, but I think the other ones, um, certainly the 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 haptic mm-hmm. sense of, of of like for example your skin. Everybody in Texas um, has had the sensation of ants crawling on them, and we do have fire ants where um, they're they're tra- they're trained to bite simultaneously, and a lot mm-hmm. of people are allergic, and they need to they need to ca- carry an EpiPen mm-hmm. with them, and so they get beat they, when they get bitten, they have mm-hmm. to inject themselves right right away. Mm-hmm. But the but but there you have a the same kind of issue. You can think, let's leave a fire ant out of it, and just take a regular ant. That a regular ant can crawl over your all, all over your skin unnoticed, or you may be able to sense where it is in in mm-hmm. some part of your skin, and so there you have the same issue of you have space, right. your your your, mm-hmm. your the skin covering your body, and then there's a location on mm-hmm. it where something of interest is happening, and mm-hmm. you know it's it, it it becomes some of these things become right. rather similar. Olfaction okay. and taste, mm-hmm. um, maybe we have to give them special um, special exemptions. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. No, but this is this is very good, right? Because in, this would imply that from this perspective of uncertainty reduction, right, right. you can really have a modality yeah. independent view there of this go. process. There right, this go. this is the Excellent. power of what, yep. what you're yep. doing. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, so yeah, this yeah, is yeah, very yeah. good. Absolutely. So so we're not stuck with vision alone. No, so no, this, no, no, okay. no, no. Very good. So now, um, so n- now that you solved the vision problem, <laughs> <laughs> um, then you thought, okay, now I solve vision. Uh, let's do motor control. Mm. Right, so you jumped into motor control. Where, where did, why did that happen? Well, I moved to Texas, and and um, when we moved the lab to Texas um, for a lab that we had to recreate it, it's quite expensive. So the the University of Texas at Austin um, gave us a, a, a very nice um, package that allowed us to recreate the lab in a new location. And but in 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 that move, I made a personal decision that we should take start taking more risks since rather than continue exactly on the same Mm -hmm. line that we were doing. And so we thought that we would um, take a look at the moving the body, not just the eyes, but what if you move the rest of the body, um, what would that look like computationally? So what we do is this embodied cognition field, which is rather strange because you build these computer models Mm -hmm. of of the human, and you try to respect a lot of the knowledge coming out out of, of, of neuroscience and psychology, but within those boundaries, you try to um, find what the principles are, like you just did this wonderful summary mm-hmm. of, of what we're about in terms of getting abstract models. And so we did, so we thought we'd try to do that for, for motor control, and we've, we've started, it's just all new and, and um, different. We have what's called MOCAP, motion capture system, that mm-hmm. um, allows us to capture the movement of our entire body um, and making arbitrarily poses and motions. And then we have... Um, we can convert that to um, a, a skeletal representation. So we have this elaborate computer um, software package developed at Stanford, OpenSim, mm-hmm. and um, that allows you to have um, what what we can loosely characterize as half a human. So a human has 600 muscles and what they call 300 degrees of freedom, or let's call them joints. Mm-hmm. And the, the software package has um, just half of that, so mm-hmm. 300 possible muscles and 150 possible joints, mm-hmm. or degrees of freedom, as we call them. And um, so we've been working with that to try to, to um, come up with ex- abstract characterizo- characterizations of movements. Mm-hmm. And um, 
that we're we're making some headway. We think. Okay, but now in 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 looking at this motor control issue, you drew a parallel between, let's say, your standard robot or humanoid robot, and a cat in this case, right? So so what are let's say the the obvious differences between these two? Like what makes a robot so different from a cat? Well, the it's a deli- it's a delicate thing to explain, but it it centers around the notion of abstraction, and the the easiest way to start is with Mozart. Mm-hmm. So if you um, take sheet music, everything Mozart ever wrote fits on one CD, but um, of course he wrote he was very prolific and he wrote wrote. Um, hundreds of things, and if, so if you have all the if you have the CD for the, all the music um, that's not coded in sheet music, it'll take many, many, many CDs. And so the the thought is, so what's the difference? It's because let's think in terms of um, the piano. The, the the code is the piano has keys, but then the, each key plays a complicated um, note, and so the playing the note per se gets all these high frequency vibrations going. And that's expensive to reproduce, whereas the actual note it's very easy to write down the symbol that will do that. So in the in the so in the same way, the cat you mentioned the cat, and also humans for that matter have the spinal cord, and so but it comes before the brain. And inside the spinal cord is what's called pattern re- generators that are very loosely announced. Um, um, loosely could be put in correspondence with a piano. Mm-hmm. So basically your spinal cord is playing the role of p- the mm-hmm. piano and then the your brain then just has to have the sheet music and play the spinal cord. And mm-hmm. that's a, so that's the insight, where the particular path we're going down and, and looking into. Right. Whereas if you take a conventional robot, mm-hmm. um, most conventional robots do not have this concept. And so basically you there's no concept of sheet mm-hmm. music. You're actually creating the notes um, with very, very high-performance um, silicon com- computation. Right. But then, so if you look at this encapsulation, because it's basically what you're saying, right? So you have a basic functionality encapsulated at your spinal cord level. Let's say I might have something like these force fields I'm controlling on my spinal cord so I can, can move the effectors in some space. And then how many piano players are you considering um, above that? Is that that's one? But for instance, the brainstem might be pushing these keys, and then the frontal areas might be pushing the keys of the brainstem, etc. Right. So, how many layers of piano players would you consider? Well, roughly, I would say we'll make one more distinction before we get there. Mm-hmm. And so, if you want a movement that's repetitive, that's a part of all your movements. So, so one thing that in the spinal cord, I should have one one little elaboration that will make things simpler is that what rather than have a different what's the size of the piano we could be arguing and mm-hmm. there's a mathematically there'd be a way of basically playing chords so that you can take you can have some basic keys frequencies and then combine them in many many different ways and so you can get a huge spectrum of movements rather cheaply in that regard mm-hmm. but another problem you face is that um, when you put on your backpack to go home as a student, then you've changed where your center of gravity is. So all the movements that are carefully designed to keep you from falling over um, won't work unless they get some help. Mm-hmm. And so you have you have a part of your brain that's much older than the forebrain, 
It's, it's called the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. And so inside the cerebellum, that it's been shown that the job of the cerebellum is just to put these temporary adaptations in mm -hmm. there. And so what, what, one big thing you have to solve before we get to the question you raised is load balancing. Mm -hmm. So there's something about your body that's changed. In some way, you're swimming in, 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 in the ocean or you've got a backpack on or something strange has happened. It has to be adjusted. That's the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. So once the cerebellum is put in those, that capability, then the, now we come to the task that you're, you, you put on us, mm -hmm. and that is that you somehow if you have a movement, like getting the kettle off the stove or, or making, whipping up an omelet, those movements, something, some coordinates in the world have to be translated into coordinates in the body. Mm -hmm. And so the forebrain is really in charge of that. Mm -hmm. And so there, we don't know how this is done. Nobody knows how this is done, but the idea, but what might be, the, what the job might be is 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 believed to be somehow doing this translation. Mm -hmm. So somehow the 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 new newer forebrain has to take the task requirements mm -hmm. and put them into some sheet music like code. Right. And we know this isn't easy because that the forebrain itself is organized into layers. Mm -hmm. So you start out with basic ideas and then you become put more and more abstract layers on top of it. So the code for these movements is not going to be easy to find out. Mm -hmm. But at least we have some ideas on how it might be organized. Right. But then so the model would be a little bit like I have my my, my piano keys and then I mean my spinal cord then I have, let's say, some sort of background modulator, which is the cerebellum, that keeps this all a little bit calibrated. And then you have your piano player in a forebrain structure pushing specific keys so you can actually walk the stairs, something like this. This would be the model. Yes. Hmm? So then, yes, huh? but then you, it's a loop. But then it's almost like you're an expert musician. So you hmm. you you can somehow chunk huge pieces of music into one common. Um, code mm -hmm. that you remember, so you you can kind of economize it. It's like an it's almost like a uh, an another kind of a, any other kind of athlete where you find huge sections of body movements mm -hmm. uh, you can repeat from memory without thinking about it because they're sort of coded by rote. Mm -hmm. And so the forebrain is is sort of the 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 generator of these kinds of more and more advanced right. codes. Yeah, but so now we have this multi-stage uh, system. Um, but if you now go back to the robotics example, there actually there's a very standard procedure of how to control movement because you would say, okay, look, I want to move the, the, the end point to some X, Y, Z position in mm -hmm. space. And now I just need some sort of inverse um, a model that now mm -hmm. maps that to the forces I have to apply to my, mm -hmm. to my joints mm -hmm. and then I move my end point in space. Mm -hmm. This however turns out to be a, a tricky problem. Mm. Right, but so do you see then this division you see between spinal cord, cerebellum, forebrain, as we just sketched it, as mapping onto that division that engineers are using in the control of robots, or that's that's sort of an alter, another kind of solution. It's another kind of solution. Mm -hmm. I think it's a huge, a huge fork in the road, and mm -hmm. I don't know if, it, if this would help, but we could think of trigonometry. Mm -hmm. So if we take the function, the sine of an angle, we have an angle, we want its sine function. Mm -hmm. And so there's two ways, to, in computers, there's two ways to do that. One is you could take small divisions of angle and pre-compute the sign for each one of those. So you can have a table, mm -hmm. a, an elaborate table. You supply the angle, I get that angle, and I go to my table, and I look up what's the sign. So in that table, it's it's rather spacious, it's but it, it it's very fast. Mm -hmm. 
And the other way to do it is I could use a series expansion. So for sine, we would have, we could, what's the sine of theta? Well, it's theta um, minus theta squared over factorial 2 plus theta cubed over factorial 3. I think I'm remembering the formula correctly. <laughs> but it's, you can write out a, a formula for it. And, and then um, every time you want to know the, the value of an angle, you could just run it through this, mm -hmm. this summation, which you can roll out to whatever accuracy you want. So the two, that's, let's summate mm -hmm. the, the, some, the, the two, two approaches. One is you have your table. And, and that has the fast lookup. And then the other one is you compute it as needed. Mm -hmm. But the, the computation is much more extensive. One table lookup, many, many terms to be a, computed mm -hmm. and added up together. Right. And so you could think of the the um, the robotics approach, one interpretation of the of the robotics approach is it's very much the series expansion mm -hmm. mode, the computationally intensive mode, in which we um, we can go down that road because the computers are so fast. We have a lot of cycles, so it's tempting to use them. Whereas you, if you can think of the body and the mm -hmm. human body as not having the cycles because the neural hardware is is over a million. Um, time slower than mm -hmm. silicon so that the the human has to use these table lookup approaches and so the and furthermore the table lookups are sort of burned in over evolution and also development each human mm -hmm. starts out not knowing how to make movements and then you sort of rather painstakingly fall on the floor learn to crawl learn to raise your right. head etc etc and so you burn them in over really over years mm -hmm. you're willing to take the time to develop the movements you'll need as so an adult so it's like you're, you're trading off memory versus Processing, exactly. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And, it's exactly right. So, in your, you would think that that in this division that you just early made of the brain, it actually relies on memory to do this, yeah. to perform this task yes. efficiently, yes. as opposed to computing this yes. all the time, right? And these are, these ideas have been around. Uh, a, a long time. They're not new. And Chris mm -hmm. Atkinson had had him early on. Um, it's MIT and then uh, George Deck, but um, amongst others. But but the 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 a lot of math has has been developed to come up with more compact codes. Mm -hmm. So the codes for the codes for these tables are becoming cheaper and cheaper. So that they're becoming more um, possible right. as as being conceptualized as the way the humans mm -hmm. might be doing it. So what's the benchmark you, you would you would like to put out there also for the roboticists to which you would like to also compare your own solutions in this kind of motor control task? What, what would be a benchmark that you think is plausible and convincing? Hmm. Well, at the bench, I have a graduate student, Joseph Cooper, mm -hmm. and his benchmark is he's making a racquetball player. Mm -hmm. And so he... He has to um, his to get his PhD. He'll have a racquetball player that he can play against. Mm -hmm. So he can play he, he, in the he, physical world, or in the virtual world, in, in the, the virtual, virtual world. world. Okay. So his his virtual an avatar of him mm -hmm. um, will will play against um, the another avatar. Right. And may the best avatar win. Okay, <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> so Dana, I mean, you're you're around in this business for a while. Um, uh, made incredible progress on, on this understanding of perception, active vision. What would you see as, as Dana's law? What's Dana's law that, that, that we should adhere to in understanding the brain? Well, I think the, 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 um, 
as an academic, it's hard to have a law because no one obey obey you. Um, that's the nature of your colleagues. <laughs> it's an ideal world. Everybody will obey Dana's law. That's right. Well, I think well, one thing I do think that um, is sorely needed in understanding the brain. We'd all like to understand the brain. Is the idea uh, is that an idea that is totally essential to silicon computation? That's abstraction. Mm-hmm. So that we we can't we can't even think about computation without think of different layers of abstraction. So you have you know the operating system that runs your program. You have your your program that's written in a high level language. That program gets translated into machine language. That program gets translated into a microcode that the particular machine architecture that can understand. That code runs on gates. Right, the gates are composed of layers of silicon, and it keeps going and going. And so, if we didn't have this essential concept of layers of abstraction, we'd be stuck. Mm-hmm. And Alan Newell really he articulated this most um, most mo- most elegantly in mm-hmm. in his book, Unified Theories of mm-hmm. Cognition. But uh, I think that's missing. And I think what what we really need, and I think what the math developments, all the math modeling and machine learning, and and, and it, that it's helping us with is we really need those kinds of concepts in thinking about how the brain works because it's obvious, or at least um, we think it's very, very necessary for the, for the brain to succeed. It has to be somehow organized into layers of abstraction. Mm-hmm. And in, in these coarse things of so spinal cord, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we can come up with good guesses. But when we get to the forebrain, we're not done. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, the, that's really the work site is to go into the forebrain and try to figure out what are the useful layers of abstraction that the, the brain is using. Mm-hmm. So Dana's law is abstraction is good for you. That's right. Excellent. Twice a day. <laughs> very, very good. So then to, to finish up, uh, five years from now, well, I, probably earlier, but let's say five years from now, I'm going to come down to Texas, and I'm going to remind you of a hypothesis you're going to generate today, which is um, what, what hypothesis do you feel most passionate about today that I can ask you about five years from now, and then it will turn out to be verified? Hmm. Well, I'll pick one mm-hmm. of one of many hypotheses. Right, and and will this be a, a like a beer bet that that if 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 it's, it's actually more serious than that, more serious no, like yeah. a dinner out? Is it, what are we talking here? That's nothing. Oh, Dana. Nothing. Come oh, on, we talk about serious bets. The housing here. market, maybe it's recovered <laughs> by the. <laughs> no, no. Now here. you're talking. Yeah. Okay. Here, here's one rather mm-hmm. specialized hypothesis okay. that's a very important to me. Mm-hmm. And the, so in, we talked about the forebrain. And inside the main memory system of the forebrain is the cortex. Mm-hmm. And the neurons in those that in the cortex, they communicate by sending spikes. And those spikes um, are, are sent at very low rates. So some are 10 spikes per second, 50 spikes mm-hmm. per second. Those are the communication um, channels of, of nerve cells in the brain's main memory system. And that one of the popular, the most popular current hypothesis is rate coding. Mm-hmm. So neurons are trying to send a number to their the, the other neurons they communicate. Uh, communicate with and one of the astonishing things that the brain uh, brain's memory system has each cell can talk um, faithfully to 10,000 other cells and this is a feat that silicon can't come close to and so the thought is that these other cells what they want to know is they want to know what this number is and how they estimate is by counting spikes 
And so um, I just think that for a variety of reasons, this um, this is untenable because it, it, you just can't communicate fast enough to get to do programs, mm-hmm. and that that um, the the what's called rate coding hypothesis is actually uh, a correlate of, of different kinds of codes that the, the, the neurons actually use. And, and so five years from now, this will be generally believed to be true. <laughs> and so as a, as, a, as a wonderful substitute mm-hmm. um, is that the brain uses some kind of um, latency code. Mm-hmm. So that sends, it has a, it has a ma- each, each little agenda task has a clock and in what's called the gamma frequency, that's mm-hmm. somewhere between 30 and, and 90 hertz, it's, and the, you each each agenda task gets a frequency, and then the spikes can send a little analog number mm-hmm. by delaying their spike mm-hmm. with respect to the clock pulse, this clock pulse. So if you're right on the clock pulse, you're a big number. If you're if mm-hmm. you're um, if you're delayed, you're a smaller number. And so the the actual spikes are actually numbers. Mm-hmm. And if if you can do that then all of a sudden the doors are open for a lot of fast communication. Mm-hmm. So if you want a prediction, that's my prediction, that five mm-hmm. years from now, the sp- a spike will be a number. Okay, very good. Thank you. So Dana Ballard, thank you very much for this conversation. I was delighted to be here, Paul. You and I have been friends for a long time, and it was, it was fun to do this too. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.